We're going to read from Luke 23. So if you would stand with me, I don't know if you are in the habit of doing that here, but we are in Pine Ridge. And uh, the reason why we stand and we read the word in, um, in Nehemiah, Ezra, he comes before all the people and he opens up God's word and he stands before the people with the podium, the wooden podium. And as he uh, opens the word of God, immediately people stand up. And it's uh, a kind of a reverence for God's word. And uh, he wants to speak to us, and so we want to be listening. This is Luke chapter 23 and verse 33. Luke chapter 23 and verse 33. And when they came to the place called the skull, where they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there is also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals, who were hanged there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since we are under this, you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and we want to receive it as such. We want to receive it as your divine communication to us. And so, Lord, as we open up, open it up, and as we read it, this is not some words on a page. This is your divine communication to us. So we want to be the kind of, kind of people who submit to it. We don't submit to it begrudgingly. We submit to it because this is your communication to us, and we want to learn from it. We want to be changed in the way that we think, and we want to change, be changed in the way we behave. So, Lord, as your people, we ask, Lord, that now you would use your word to penetrate through the depths of who we are. So we'd be transformed because of it. I pray, Lord, you'd help me to get out of the way, and your word would come to the forefront now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. morning sermon, but um, if you wanted to title it, you might want to say from thief to paradise, something like that, from criminal to paradise. There's two main things uh, for us to learn here this morning. One is, is how do we ever share the message of Jesus with somebody else? Sometimes people say, well, the only way we can do it is if you have the gift of evangelism. You've got to be gifted, or you've got to have a certain script memorized. And if you don't have that script memorized, well, then you can't share the gospel. So people wait, and they wait, and they wait until such a time as that. Luke 23, in this story of this thief who ends up going to paradise, starts out as a thief, ends up going to paradise in the end, the, the content of what it takes to become a follower of Jesus must therefore be found in this short story. And all the components of what it takes to become a follower of Jesus can be found in this story. 
So if you ever want to talk to Jesus about somebody else and you remember this story, this is a good place to start. There's others here, maybe you don't know Jesus and you wonder, what is it like for me to have a relationship with him? How do I get connected to God if I'm uh, outside of his family, if you will, but yet I understand uh, that God is maybe trying to get a hold of me and I would want to know what it's like to be connected to the God of the universe. Well, this story also will be for you this morning. It begins here in verse 33, when they came to the place called the Skull. Now, we don't know exactly where this is, um, but when I was in Jerusalem, I had the chance to go with uh, Andrew Dexter and Coral Jameson. Uh, both of them are not here this morning. must have heard I was preaching. And uh, that's what happens when you get a guest speaker. But I can get Jamie and Danny. They, they came all the way. <laughs> not at all. Familiar faces for me, of course. Uh, but the place of the skull, so uh, Laurel Jeans and myself, Andrew Dexter, we went to this place uh, just outside of Jerusalem. There's this hill area, and in the, in the side of the hill, uh, over the years, there has been some weathering that has happened to the stonework, and it actually looks like a skull. And a lot of people suggest that it was on top of this hill is where Jesus was crucified. We don't know if that's the case or not, but all crucifixions generally were held outside the city. But they wanted it to be in some kind of a public place, often they'd be done on the roads or near the roadside, as a message to all the people who would stand against the Roman Empire. You stand against the Roman state, you're in deep trouble. And so don't ever do this. This is what happens to you if you stand against the Roman state. Now some people would suggest, well, therefore it must have been the Romans who really crucified Jesus. Well, Peter would suggest in Acts chapter 2 that it was the Jews who did it. Of course, it was some kind of conglomeration of the two. But here we have Jesus, now already to the point where he's crucified. It's at this place called the Skull. But in the crucifixion here, we find that there's criminals on either side of him. One's on the right and one's on the left. This is going to become important. I want you to remember this. So Jesus is standing in the middle, and there's a criminal on this side of him, and there's a criminal on the other side. And on occasion, this criminal responds to this criminal over here, and this one does to him. And whenever that communication is going, Jesus is listening because he's in the middle. They're in close enough proximity to one another to have conversations. I'm sure they were grimacing in their faces as they're all in agony, but they could carry on conversations. So Luke wants to make sure we understand this, because there's a, the conversations that are going on are conversations that all three of them can be a part of because they're close proximity to each other. In Matthew's account, it labels the criminals as robbers. So maybe these guys were thieves. We don't know for certain, but from uh, Matthew's account, it would suggest so. But regardless, they're being punished by the Roman state for their crimes against the Roman Empire. Then we pick it up in verse 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's a very, very profound statement. It's a very... Um, profound understanding of what forgiveness is. You want to go to a place in the scriptures to understand what does forgiveness looks like, this is it. Jesus is forgiving the very people who pinned him to the cross. Of any place you can get to in a point of forgiveness, this would be the standard by which we need to be followers of what Jesus did here. Father, forgive the very people who pinned me here. And as we're going to find out here, the whole crowd are all against him. They're sneering, they're jesting, they're mocking him, they're abusing him, all with speech. And Jesus, in a sense, is alone on the cross. But he's saying, Father, forgive them. Now, what's important to understand here is that 
Forgiveness only requires one party. Reconciliation requires two. Jesus is not reconciled to these people. These people wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Again, they're hurling abuse, they're mocking him, they're sneering him, want nothing to do with him. But regardless of how people respond to us, we are asked by God to forgive them. This is very important. It's not conditioned on what other people do. Quite often, uh, people in Christian circles get confused at what forgiveness looks like. Well, if I really forgive somebody, then we need to be really close in friendship. That is not the case. But it's not because you may not want to be friends with them. It's because they are not into reconciliation. You can forgive them, but obviously they need to uh, come clean with whatever they've done toward you. Does God ask us to go into minefields? Of course not. How much time did Jesus spend with his most common enemies, which were the Pharisees? Not at all, unless they approached him. So forgiveness does not require reconciliation. Reconciliation, there's two parties. Well, we are asked by God to forgive everybody. In fact, when Jesus uh, was teaching us how to pray, he made sure that that was a part of it. And as you're praying to God the Father, forgive me for what I've done wrong, as I forgive others who have wronged me. I can tell you that unforgiveness is one of the strongest weapons against Christianity. It is uh, the strongest weapon, and I'm, I don't mean to be gender biased here, but uh, from my limited experience, women have far more of a problem with this. Men, we've got our own problems. But unforgiveness is a common problem with women. And whether or not you're a man or woman, I've struggled with unforgiveness in my own life too. It's a period of six months I went through it. And when you when you're in a place of unforgiveness, you can rehash it, and it keep you you keep replaying it over and over in your head. And you think that unforgiveness and bitterness is something just that's inside of yourself. It's not. It leaks out in who you are. In my limited experience, if you're an unforgiving person or if you're a bitter person, there are three things that accompany you. One is you have a heightened sense of justice. A heightened sense of justice. And quite often you're speaking about justice and you're speaking about the injustices that are happening out there. Why? Because internally you've never gotten it, and so you need to be a strong advocate for those who are receiving injustices out there. There tends to be a heightened awareness of the injustices that are going on out there. People who are bitter and unforgiving tend to be the kind of people who the glass is always half empty. Why? Because they've never received what they thought that they've deserved. And so as they look out in the world, it's not a good world. Therefore, the glass is often half empty. What's the third one? Glass is half empty, heightened sense of injustice. The last one is they have a hard time maintaining friendships. Because they don't trust people. And even the people that they trust, if they come close to them, if they step over the line, even remotely, wham, it comes out. And Jesus says that they can't be the case. And that's why when he taught us to pray, he says, forgive. And here is the standard by which we forgive. You forgive the very people who can do these kinds of crimes against you, even pinning Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's an amazing statement in here. And then we have this quote from the Old Testament. But it's actually not so much a quote from the Old Testament as to what was going on right there in the scene. They cast lots dividing up his garments among themselves. In uh, Psalm 22, <clears throat> you don't have to turn there, but just uh, if you're taking notes, you can jot it down. Psalm 22, David says this, 
They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This never happened to David. David was not speaking about himself. But in the inspiration of the Spirit, he's writing what occurred right here with Jesus as he's being pinned to the cross. This is one of the most incredible things in Scripture. Hundreds of prophecies have been um, written in regards to this coming Messiah and what was going to occur in his life. And this is one of them right here. It's a proof that the Bible is not just some kind of document. It can predict things in prophetic kinds of ways that come true. And of course, what David wrote was hundreds of years before. This is one of the things about um, Jesus coming to this earth and everything that surrounded him. It was um, a predetermined plan. A predetermined plan that was set in motion before the world was ever created. So, if, again, if you're taking notes, you can just jot this down. But in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about the plan that God and God the Father and Jesus Christ had before the world was ever created. Listen to this. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. This is not a predestination of a particular group of people in Ephesians. This is a predestination of the plan whereby we could be right with God through the Christ. And this plan was set in motion before the world was created. Now there's something profound in here because if a Christ is already needed, already knew that a Christ would be needed before any of us were ever created, it's assuming this. That if God's going to create human beings with free will, they're going to choose against him at some point. And God, instead of leaving us alone, he already came up with the plan to rescue us. We talked about it this morning, this ransom death that Jesus has done for us. He had to put it in motion. Because if we are really going to be given free will, we're going to choose against him. And so what we have here is this prophetic word beforehand. They cast lots uh, for my garments. And of course, places like Isaiah 53, talking all about the suffering Messiah. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy predicting this Messiah who's going to come into the world. Why? Because we need him. God the Father and Jesus Christ, as they had this conversation before the world was ever created, they said they're going to choose against us. What are we going to do? Son, I think you're going to have to go. And of course, Jesus struggled with that, but here we find him willfully surrendering his own life as a ransom death for us. They cast up, they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. The people stood by looking on. We talked about this also in Psalm 22. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They're not doing this as a kind of, well, let's see, let's see if he, uh, see if he is the Christ and he comes down. This is done in a sneering way. He saved others, let him save himself. This is Christ of God. This is a real guy. Well, come on down. You're the big shot. Come on down. And Jesus is all alone on the cross, and he's forgiving the people as hard as that would have been to forgive the people who pinned him there. Now he's got a group of people sneering at him, the rulers sneering at him. And that wasn't it. Soldiers also joined in on this in verse 36. And they mocked him. 
They come up to him offering him sour wine, probably on a sponge of some sort and lifting it up to him. Of course, that's not going to help his thirst at all. And say, if you're the king of the Jews, well, then save yourself. Are you some king? Really some hot shot of the Jews? Well, then come down. They're saying this because above him was this inscription that says, this is the king of the Jews. In John chapter 19, we find out that it's written in Hebrew, it's written in Greek, it's written in Latin. Everybody knew who walked by and who was there. But the soldiers, they, they join in on this sneering and this mockery. You really the king of the Jews? Well, then come on down. And that's not it. One of the criminals who hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So one of the one of the two guys, we don't know which, which side it was, but one of the two guys is now hurling abuse at Jesus. This is an abuse fest going on here. And this guy, in his last breath, he's gonna he's gonna save his last breath to go after Jesus. It's an amazing thing because we've got criminals on either side. The only description we have of them is criminals. And one can choose to be aligned with Jesus, and one can choose not. What's the basis of it? It's free will. You can be so close to Jesus and so close to death and still spend your last death um, saying something horrific toward the God of the universe who's right there. He's hurling abuse at him, so it's not doing this in a kind of a last plea kind of a way. This isn't a deathbed type experience where he's pleading with Jesus Christ. No, he's doing this, it says there, in an abusive kind of way. Are you not the Christ? Well, then save yourself and us. This is no kind of plea. He's hurling abuse at him. But the other answered in verse 40, and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God? So we got him again. He's talking across Jesus to the other one. And as he's talking across him, Jesus, of course, is hearing this. And at the beginning, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't, do not know what they're doing. Again, close proximity. Either guy would have been able to hear him as well. So this one guy's referring to the other, the only person who's sticking up for Jesus. The rebuke says, don't you fear God? Something to do with this guy in the middle. Something to do with what you're doing right now is clearly evidence that you do not fear God. This guy here is somehow in some way associated with God. You want to hurl abuse at this guy? Are you kidding me? And this guy, in his last breath, he's rebuking him. What are you doing? What are you doing? We're here because we deserve it, it says here. We indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. This, one, this man's done nothing wrong. And as he's talking to the guy on the other side, he's actually saying it to Jesus as well. I get it. I'm here for what I did wrong. It's an open confession of what he's done wrong. I deserve to be here for what I've done wrong, and so do you. How is it that you cannot understand this? Again, we've got two guys on either side of Jesus. You could be so close to Jesus and still miss him, and still choose your own selfish way. But the one criminal, the only guy there, the only guy there is sticking up for Jesus. Do you not even fear God? We're here because we deserve it. Isn't it interesting, he says, but this man's done nothing wrong. He also has an understanding of Jesus in the middle, is this guy's pure, this guy's completely innocent. And then he addresses Jesus, first time, in verse 42. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now this is very profound. He knew him by name. 
Now, we don't know what kind of encounter he had beforehand, but he had an understanding of who Jesus was. And he says, Jesus, remember me. Can you remember me when you come in your kingdom? Lots going on here. To say, remember me when you come in your kingdom says that even though this guy's in his last breath, this ain't over for this guy. Whatever this criminal knows about Jesus, he believes that this death that's happening to him right now is not over for him. In fact, this guy, in fact, is a king. And this guy is going to come back. We've been talking about this in Revelation. I know you've been studying this as well. And our king is coming back. And this man believes that Jesus is a king in a kingdom. And he's going to be coming back. And he makes this request to Jesus. He's now di directly talking to him. He says, can you remember me? Is there any chance? Is there any chance that you can remember me when you come in your kingdom? In other words, he's suggesting maybe this couldn't be, may not be the end for me either. I'm in my last breath here as well. This might not be the end for me. And it won't be the end for me if you choose to remember me. Because I know you're, you're going to be coming in your kingdom. And to remember me, he's now talking in relational terms. He's, talking, he's not talking in, in theological terms. He's not talking in doctrinal terms. He's talking in relational terms. Can you remember me when you come? Doesn't know this guy very well. Clearly he hears and he knows this guy um, has preached or said something where he has a kingdom that it's not going to be over for him. He's going to obviously be resurrected from the dead. He believes all this kind of thing. But he believes also that somehow, someway, this guy who's innocent in the middle could possibly choose to remember him. And remember what he heard from Jesus at the very beginning. Father, forgive them. Can you imagine this criminal here says, we're here for what we deserve. And he says, well, if he can forgive the kind of people who pinned him up here, then maybe he could forgive me. Maybe he could forgive me. I think sometimes people think, well, my forgiveness is beyond what Jesus can forgive. But Jesus can forgive the very people who pinned him to the cross. He can forgive a person like me. And he can forgive a person like you. Remember me when you come to your kingdom. And now Jesus, who has not talked to anybody yet, he's not spoken to anybody. Why doesn't Jesus address the abusive people? Why doesn't, he, why doesn't he address the mocking people? They want nothing to do with them. They want nothing to do with them. So the only thing that Jesus has done so far is he addressed God the Father. I'm, I'm assuming it was out loud. It's because he was saying, Father, forgive them. But now he addresses the one criminal. I'll put him here over on the left side. Again, close enough proximity that they can talk all the way across so he can talk to them. And he says this. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Again, really profound stuff here. He doesn't say tomorrow. He doesn't say there's going to be a period of time in purgatory. He says this day you'll be with me in paradise. Now for those who die in Jesus Christ, who don't get their new bodies, they go directly to be with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 talks about it as a kind of a naked state. Because you don't have your new body yet, but you are with Jesus. New bodies don't come until Jesus comes back. This is in places like 1 Corinthians 15, uh, places like 1 Thessalonians 4, but also in 2 Corinthians 5. Where when Jesus comes back, then we'll get our new bodies. But here he says, this day, no period of waiting, you'll be with me in paradise. But more than just this day, did you catch what he said? You'll be with me. You're asking me 
whether or not I could remember you when I come in my kingdom. I'm telling you, you'll be with me. We will be connected. We'll be connected in glory. Now that's the promise we're looking forward to. The people who don't know Jesus and they have some kind of understanding of heaven, they typically talk about, I can't wait to see such and such. I can't wait to see this person or that person. Why are they doing that? Because it's relational. The most important thing on this planet is relationships. And the most important thing in this world is the relationship with Jesus Christ. So he says, can you remember me? And Jesus says, you get to be with me. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a promise I look forward to. First John, it talks about Jesus, or it talks about God the Father as being love. That is his primary characteristic. I was talking with somebody last week about what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I said, it's the only religion where you can be related to the God of the universe. You can be related to your God because he's not a judge. Yes, he will act as a judge, but not to us because he's paid the ransom death. And for those of us who have taken the steps like this criminal has, we will be rightly related with Jesus Christ. And that picture in Luke chapter 15, you remember that picture in Luke 15, that guy who wandered away from God, and then he realizes and says, well, I'll, I'll go approach my father. It's really a, de a depiction of God the Father. I'll approach my father and tell him I'm sorry. And as he's on the way there, what does the father do? He's on the edge of his, um, edge of his driveway, and he runs out to meet him, gives him this great big hug. Now that's a hug I look forward to. When we get to glory, yes, it's going to be about streets of gold. Sure, there's going to be green grass, and there's going to be golf course, I don't know. But we get to be with Jesus. We get to be with Jesus. See, if you are in a place like paradise, where there's nobody there, it gets boring really quick. I don't know about if any of you have been to, how many have been to Disneyland or Disney World? Yeah, there's been a few, yeah. I, I've been like, Six times. I love the place. Super fun. And, uh, you know, you get there and there's all these rides and there's these music going on and the food's fantastic and you love it. So imagine you're at Disneyland and you got, you got a pass and you can go there all day long and for as long as you want. All the rides are going on, all the music's going on, all the food's there, but you're all by yourself. How fast is it going to get more? How quick will we get more? it's not about the streets of gold. Yes, that's going to be some great side benefits. It's about being with Jesus. That's what this guy wants. The guy says, can I get the streets of gold? Can I, can I have the paradise? He says, I want to be with you. Is there any way that I can be with you? Jesus says, yeah, you get to be with me. Colossians talks about when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then we will be together with him. First Thessalonians talks about the same thing. When the Lord comes back, we will be caught up together with him, and thus we will be with the Lord forever. The one who has never wronged us, the one who has paid the ransom penalty for all the stuff we've done wrong, we get to be with him. No mockery, no abuse, no sneering, no sneering, but wide open arms of Jesus welcoming us into heaven. Now, is it going to be glorious? Of course, it is that word paradise here is the same word for paradise in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember the story where uh, Peter, and I'm rather Peter, Paul, he's in a vision and he gets caught up into a third heaven and it's a place called paradise, the same word here. And he's describing heaven and some of the things he can't describe. 
But yeah, he gets to be with Jesus in paradise. So this guy starts out as a criminal. Starts out as a criminal, and by the end, he's going to be with Jesus in paradise that day. So what happened? What happened where a guy who starts out as a criminal ends up going to glory in the end? I'm going to give you eight things that, I, that I've noticed that happened in this, guy, in this story. Uh, first of all, he heard Jesus that Jesus can forgive people. Father, forgive him. So he heard Jesus forgive him because he's saying it out loud, and we know that you can at least hear from this guy over to the other guy, so more than likely he's hearing Jesus actually forgive him. And you can imagine, if this guy can forgive these kinds of people out there, he can forgive a person like me. I don't know about you, but some of the stories in the, in the Bible are really a comfort for me. But David, who was abusive in his power, uh, killed Uriah, slept with his wife, it's awful, awful stuff. God forgave him. Apostle Paul, standing there, standing there with the authority to make sure Stephen gets put to death. Furiously enraged at Christians is his own testimony. God forgave him. And here Jesus has forgiven the very people who pinned him on the cross. And this criminal is listening. Jesus can forgive people like that, maybe he can forgive a person like me. So he understands that Jesus can forgive people. Obviously, he also realized his own guilt. He realized his own guilt. He says here that we are here for what we deserve. He realizes his own guilt. It's actually quite amazing that guilt is even in the dictionary. The guilt is quite an amazing thing, you know. Because what if I were to tell you, or what if you were to just tell humanity, why don't you turn that switch off? There's no guilt. Do whatever you want. You can't turn it off. You can't turn off the guilt because the God of the universe has placed his law of love in your hearts. Every human being. Romans chapter 2 makes this very clear. The law of God is written on everybody's hearts. And what is the law of God? It's summed up in two things. Loving God and loving others. So that law of love is written on everybody. That's why Jesus, when he comes, the first words out of his mouth, and people he's never met, he can say repent. Because he knows they're all guilty of selfishness. And so this guy realizes his own guilt. And then he confesses it out loud. Remember, he's confessing it to the other guy. We're here for what we deserve. And as he's confessing that, Jesus is listening. Then, of course, he defended Jesus. As much as he had the opportunity to, he defended the guy. He wants to be related with him. And if that means defending him in the midst of everybody else who's in opposition to him, then I will defend him. We've been talking a lot about this in Revelation, haven't we? This notion of being an overcoming overcomer them, pushing through to the end, even if you face death. Those churches were facing all kinds of persecution. Some had already died. First of you, right through to the end. And this guy says here, I don't care if everybody else is against him. I'm with this guy. Everybody else is against this guy. I'm with this guy. I want to be with this guy. So he defends Jesus. He also had the fear of God for what he did wrong. Remember what he says, do you not even fear God because we have done what we deserve? He fears God and he should fear God. He should fear God. Do you remember when God appeared in the Old Testament and he's up on the mountain and Moses is there and the Israelites are there and the Israelites are scared to death because there's thunder and lightning and all this stuff. And Moses, you go, because we're scared. We can also talk about this in Revelation. Haven't we about the wrath of God? 
especially this last chapter. I know we just went through Revelation 14 as well. Really, really hard stuff to go through. But the wrath of God is remaining on those who have not asked Jesus to forgive them. It's really, it's going to be awful, awful. The description of Revelation 14 talks about the torment that they go through. So don't even fear God. We're in deep trouble. If we appear before God with these things attached to us, we're in deep trouble. So he understands that what he has done wrong is associated with fearing God. And then he believes that Jesus is going to be resurrected from the dead. Remember me when you come into the kingdom. He believes in his resurrection. This isn't finished for this guy. This is just the beginning. This guy's going to, it looks like he's defeated here, but this guy's going to be victorious, and he believes that. He believes that Jesus is going to be resurrected. This is not finished for him. He also believed that he could appeal to Jesus personally, and maybe in that appeal to Jesus personally, and talking to him personally, maybe Jesus would be okay with, with him, and that maybe he'd want to be in a relationship with him. And so he addresses Jesus personally, audibly. And then, of course, he asks for the remembrance as he appeals to him. Is there any way that we can be associated together? So what does it take for somebody to be, to start as a criminal and end up going to paradise? This is the story. This is the story. And if you're a Christian here today, this is the story you've gone through. You've gone through this. You've understood it. You've understood that Jesus has the capacity and the authority to forgive you understand that you have to appeal, him, appeal to him directly, talk to him. You have to admit what you've done wrong and confess that wrong to Jesus Christ with the hope that because he's been resurrected from the dead, with the hope that Jesus will forgive you of those sins. This is the story. It's a great story to remember. You say, I don't know how to share Jesus Christ. It's right here. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, this is how you get to know him right here. There's a few other side lessons. Those are eight attached to one lesson, and maybe I should have put them up here, but those are eight attached to one. I'd also say that there's some side lessons in here, and that Christians need to forgive, regardless of what anybody's ever done to them. I cannot begin to tell you, if you have unforgiveness here, you've got to come clean with God. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, you know what it says? Jesus tells us to pray this way, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And at the very end, he could, he could revisit anything he said in the Lord's Prayer, but he chose to revisit only one thing. For if we do not forgive men their sins, our Father will not forgive ours. The condition on your forgiveness is whether or not you forgive other people. I don't care who you are in this room. There's a, there's a list of people who've done you wrong. I will guarantee it. There's a list of people. If you are the kind of person who you find yourself revisiting this over and over again, you need to ask yourself the question, have I forgiven them? You find yourself in a place where you have a heightened sense of justice or um, you have a hard time maintaining friendships or the world is, it seems like it's, like it's half empty. Ask yourself the question, have I really forgiven? Jesus and the, the Bible in Ephesians 4 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it go down on your anger. It turns into bitterness and unforgiveness. And if you do not forgive people what they've done to you, neither will your father forgive you. I remember years ago talking to my uncle about this. 
he had uh, he had gone to church, I think, for uh, maybe 10 years. He, he'd gone to the church, Foothills Line Church, because I was pastoring there, and he decided to come. Uh, he was uh, a mason. I just noticed walking up here, you've got a masonic thing, mason thing over here, two boards down. Um, anyways, he was a devoted mason, and uh, a lot of masons I believe that you know you do good things and you'll get to heaven. That's a lot of people who believe that stuff. My uncle believed that, and so he thought maybe I'll, I'll attend church. And he attended church because I was one of the pastors that really liked me. He was my favorite uncle. And uh, so he went for about five years while I was there. Then I left, and he continued uh, to go to church. And then when I came back uh, about three years later, I was in Kentucky and came back, still going to church. And he asked me one day, he said, uh, Dan, will you come to my, uh, will you come to my baptism? I said, man, I love it. So I phoned um, I phoned the pastors at Foothills and uh, I said to them, uh, "Do you know that my uncle is a is a full on bigot? Like he is a he doesn't hide it. He is a man who is very bigoted, and uh, I knew some other stuff that was going on in his life as well." And he said, "No, no, I, no he's really turned the corner, and uh, we think that he's a born again Christian." I said, "Okay." So I went to the baptism and I listened to his baptism testimony, which was very generic. And uh, so I had my doubts, even though he was baptized right there, I had my doubts. So I went over to his house and I asked him about uh, somebody that I knew had wronged him in his life. Um, my uncle was a very wealthy man and this person um, who had wronged him, uh, I don't need to get into it. But I said, have you ever gotten to the point where you've forgiven that person? Because I knew that it was an issue in his life. He says, if I saw that guy in alley, I'd kick him in the water. So you can't go through the waters of baptism and say that you're a follower of Jesus when you're harboring that unforgiveness. And he wouldn't move on. And I told him exactly what I'm telling you. This notion, again, this standard of Jesus here to forgive the very people opinion. I told him, you've got to, you've got to forgive them. Anybody else is wrong in your life? Didn't want it. Ended up with stage four cancer um, about two years later. He asked me if I'd do this funeral for him, and I said, of course I would. And um, what, I, what I had spoken to him about, he needs to get to the point where he forgives everybody in his life. And um, about three or four months before he passed away, he did. Crazy good story. He did. I remember being at the... Um, my uncle's front door, and just as I was leaving, he, you know, with tears in his eyes, and he said, Dad, he's not forgiving everybody. I praise the Lord. And so it was a different kind of funeral I could prepare for. I was preparing for a much different funeral than I was able to deliver. But he understood forgiveness. So don't miss what Jesus is doing here. You need to forgive the people, even the kind of people who would pin you to a cross. You need to forgive them. It's a side lesson going on here. Also, God's word is faithful. There's another lesson in here. Um, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And he's one of them here. They cast lots, dividing up the garments among themselves. Um, the notion that when we die, we immediately go to be with the Lord. There's no waiting place. Uh, lots of other lessons in here. Um, maybe that's enough for us. Um, great story. And lots in here. And I'm curious to hear uh, what you're thinking. Maybe some thoughts or some comments or maybe I missed something. Um, what, what are you thinking, Church?
know you do dialogue as well. We do it at our church as well. So maybe some thoughts or some comments you may have. Why not share the message of Jesus? Remember the story. Please remember the story. And if you're not a Christian here, this is it. This is how you get your life right with Jesus. That's it. That's all that's required. What I love about the story, too, is that he couldn't do any penance afterwards, could he? He's been there. What can he do? He can't do anything. Jesus is saying it's not based on you earning anything. It's based on you confessing your sin and believing in me. I pray, Lord Jesus, if there's anybody here harboring unforgiveness, where they find themselves laying awake at night revisiting the pain that they've gone through, Lord, I pray that you'd help them and bring them to the place where they forgive that person or series of people, if that's the case. We depend upon you, we depend upon your word, and we depend upon your spirit. And we have no problem calling ourselves dependent people because we're dependent on your love and we're dependent on your forgiveness. So thank you, Lord, that this day we can walk in victory and we can walk guilt-free because you've taken away our sin. You were the ransom penalty for all we've done wrong. And thank you so much for that, Jesus. We can't wait to meet you person to person, face to face. But for now, we put our faith and our hope and our trust in you. Thomas wouldn't believe until he sees, until he saw you. And you said, Lord, how blessed are those who have not seen you believe. That's us here. We haven't seen you yet. But when we get to see you, we get to be with you, Lord. You will welcome us there, and we can't wait. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to go with that thought all afternoon. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.